On Tuesday, March 16th, eight people were killed when a man opened fire in three Atlanta area massage businesses. He was arrested close by within hours. Six of the victims were of Asian descent. As of now, when I'm recording, I'm aware of six names that I want to acknowledge. Jelena Ashley Yan, Paul Andre Michael, Xiaoji Tan, Dayo Feng, Julie Park, and Hyun Young Park. On Wednesday last week, March 10th, I had sat down with Irene Koo from Revolutionaire to talk about what's happening with the Asian community today in the U.S. Unfortunately, as Irene and I talked about, this is timely and we wanted to push up the release. To our Asian brothers and sisters, grandparents, moms and dads, whoever, we love you very much and commit to fighting this. I certainly commit to taking action and raising awareness about what's happening because we all know this didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen just one year ago. It didn't happen just four years ago. This has been something that we have been ignoring for quite a while. Our anti-racist journey must include everyone in that sphere. It is clear that white supremacy is a huge problem domestically. And if we spent a little less time denying the term racist and just using it and doing the actual work that goes behind it, I think we'd make a lot more progress as we're seeing happen time and time again, including this time. Now, I'll pass it off to myself a week ago. Welcome back to Down to Brown. As you know, we are all about allyship over here. The whole point of our conversations is to not only separate the Indian stigma, American pressures, and figure out where we fall and free ourselves from that confusion, but also by understanding ourselves better and living these more self-aware lives that we're be able to show up stronger for our allyship communities. And that includes some of the conversations we've talked about with the Black community. And today I wanted to talk about the Asian American community, which is, you know, interestingly, the box we tend to check <laughs> South Asians or Indians. We tend to usually say Asian Pacific Islander and we fall into the same category. But of course, there's so much diversity within the Asian continent. It is really broad when you do that. And I think often we talk about how it's so difficult to check that box because the multitudes of what we are. Um, and today I wanted to address something that is super important and I hope that we're all taking time to understand, which is the anti-Asian hate and violence that's taking place. And a lot of the targets of these are elderly Asian Americans and also taking place in big cities. So rather than me Asian explain what's happening here. I wanted to talk to someone who is super close to this and doing the damn work around this. So I talked today to Irene Koo, who is part of the Revolutionaire leadership team. Revolutionaire is an education action and amplification platform for young change makers. They are launching more broadly soon. So make sure you sign up. Um, and but they have started with a very interesting story, which we'll talk about with Irene. Why I wanted to talk to Revolutionary in particular was because I didn't want to just understand what was happening. That could be really easily communicated or Googled, but more around what can we do around it? What is happening to the personal lives of people who are affected by this? What is some of the history? This didn't really happen overnight. This isn't all related to COVID. There has been a pattern of discrimination and racism against our Asian community. And for me, it felt like my job to understand it better and hear it from the source and be able to be a better ally and a stronger ally in the future. Now it's time to talk to Irene of Revolutionaire about what is happening with the anti-Asian hate we're seeing in the U.S. today. Irene, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Lahari. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you. 
help us understand, you know, especially because I had the chance to catch up a little bit with you guys earlier, but what is Revolutionaire? Yeah, so Revolutionaire is a digital education, action, and amplification platform for young changemakers and activists. And we do this through um, our dedicated content hub and social platforms, which really facilitate learning about causes and connecting with peers, collaborating with those peers, taking action and recharging. So we have five main pillars, um, all the way from tackling racial inequity to criminal justice reform to climate change. And I'd say that it's um, in one place, we assemble the tools, network, and information for change makers, because especially um, in our society, when there are so many different tools, it can be pretty overwhelming to um, kind of see where we really began making change. So that's revolutionary in a nutshell. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know how you summarized all of that wealth of <laughs> actions that you guys take into just a few minutes, because that's a lot. And um, I'm so happy that there are organizations like yours out there. And it's interesting because you've named several causes that you are, you know, you put your energy behind. And I remember your one of your co-founders, Nia, mentioning that it started off as a clothing wear for inclusive um ballerina wear. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was founded, Revolutionary was founded by Nia, um, who's a 19-year-old Howard University student. And she has been in the ballet world for a long time. And this really, the organization stemmed from her dream that every dancer would have an apparel that celebrates the skin that they're in. So um, it's, it's pretty different from what we're at right now, but inspired by Nia's work towards her dream towards a more equitable um, ballet world, her older sister, Justice Faith, asked what it would look like if more young leaders who are striving to change the world had access to the network tools and information to really scale their impact. Mm -hmm. So that's how Revolutionaire evolved from uh, revolutionizing the dance world Um into a larger movement um, to, again, bringing a digital education, action, and amplification platform for young change makers across various causes. That is so impressive. And oddly, I do see the connection between, you know, starting as Ballerina Wear to what it is today. I think often people think that when we talk about equity and inclusion, it's these large abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it's also the everyday things like the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the, you know, like the makeup you mm -hmm. use. And that's why I said, like, you know, when Rihanna comes out with like Fenty or, you know, it means a lot to people. Um, you know, lots. Yeah, it means a lot to see yourself in this type of any space. And so um, I love the evolution of it and how the objectives don't really change, whether you're selling clothing or coming to, you know, affect this type of change. Mm -hmm. um, so is that what spoke to you? What spoke to you about Revolutionary for you to get involved? Yeah. So when I first entered college, I had the opportunity to meet with people of so many different backgrounds, thoughts and ideas. And I realized I wanted to become more well-versed in the various political and social issues that were going on and learn how to take action. So what was important to me throughout college and even now is better understanding how to make an impact in our many communities and articulating my thoughts and ideas around these social issues. Um, and I still consider myself very new to this space. And again, I didn't really know where to start. And um, in the meanwhile, I have been working with Justice Faith, um, one of the co-founders of Revolutionaire, and we've been working on Building Blocks, which is our organization dedicated to teaching and empowering high school students literally all over the world about social entrepreneurship. Justice told me about her newest venture with Revolutionaire, and I wanted to get involved because I thought it was the perfect intersection of learning more about these causes and taking action. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it's partly, you know, like selfish quote, quote, in that like you want to become more involved, more articulate in it. Mm -hmm. But then also the type of impact that you're having is selfless. And um, I love that you're able to do both simultaneously even especially after mm -hmm. George Floyd's murder last year, we I think a lot of people were interested in having more of these conversations and tougher conversations with their friends or mm -hmm. peers, coworkers, et cetera. But to be able to have the language and empathy and the kind of muscle to have these talks is also equally important. And I think, important, you know, to spend time 
to make sure that you're doing it correctly too. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that there's a right way, but um, to at least takes practice. Honestly, it just takes practice and working with the right people who do know what they're doing. And I think the fact that you went out of your way to do that um, and Revolutionary is providing that ability to not only help the folks that are on the other end of the you know workshops or platform, but also those who are working in it um, and volunteering their time. I think that's so awesome. Thank you. And so if you've, yeah, if you've sold, you know, for folks listening about Revolutionary and especially like as you think about, you know, it's a, something that's present everywhere. How does one get involved um, with it? Um, how can people participate in the work that Revolutionary is doing? Absolutely. So Revolutionary will be launching this spring and listeners can sign up to be the first to know when we're live at www.joinrev. Co. So that's the website that um, houses our wait list for listeners. I have a million reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you today. And the biggest one being to shed more light, a more informed light on what's happening with the U.S. Asian community today. So we saw in 2020 a 150% spike in attacks against the Asian community. And you'll be surprised when you look at the breakdown, which I'll post later in our Instagram account, it is about entirely big cities that we stereotypically assume are liberal and probably have a lot of uh, population that is used to having a diverse environment. So if you had to explain to us, Irene, in kind of 101 terms, What is happening right now with the Asian community? For sure. So as many of the listeners uh, may be aware of, anti-Asian violence has been sprouting from all different parts of the U.S., um, especially recently. So as you mentioned, over the last year, COVID-19 has really driven a rise in xenophobia, racism, and hate crimes towards Asians and Asian Americans. So in the last month in particular, there's been a disturbing wave of anti-Asian violence, um, such as acid attacks and assaults on Asian seniors in the streets of major cities, such as San Francisco and New York City. And I think that much of this violence has been driven by misplaced hatred, anger, and frustration created by the pandemic and Mm -hmm. fueled by some of the political um, dialogues that has been going on. So according According to Stop AAPI Hate, which is a national coalition that's documenting all these anti-Asian bigotry during the pandemic, um, the organization has received more than 2,800 firsthand accounts of anti-Asian hate from last March to the end of last year throughout the United States. So this this I'm sure a lot of um, Asians can relate to, but I went to college in New York City and I'm um, thinking of returning. And I think for the first time in the four years that I've spent there, um, I am feeling a little bit afraid to go back to New York City, which is definitely a new feeling to be had um, for me, at least. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I think it's really powerful to hear that. And also, The fact that for a long time, you know, it's interesting, sometimes you have conversations with folks about safe cities, if you um, belong, you know, you identify as non-white and um, big cities tend to be top of the list of, oh, well, maybe I'll feel safer there. Um, And a lot of the times, even when I sometimes talk to my parents about like, oh, maybe I'll move to Austin or some, you know, another city in a town that's maybe a little bit more Republican, they'll say, oh, no, stay in California. It's very safe, um, especially like, you know, with racism. But a lot of the incidents that are happening, the number two, uh, the top two cities where these incidents are taking place are New York and L.A. Those are kind of the highest frequency. Um, So how do you address, you know, what would you say about the fact that like, why are we seeing this in big cities, especially since they're kind of stereotyped to be, quote, more Democrat or more liberal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that it has to do with the fact that big cities attract a lot of different people. And those people may have um, a wide spectrum of their understanding of different races and how and their thoughts on how to coexist peacefully um, despite our differences and with our many similarities. So I think that's one of the reasons why big cities, um, naturally with more people, um, there is an increase in crime. And then second, I think, is that with big cities, there's um, a feeling of being anonymous, right? And I feel like mm-hmm. feel having that sense of um, 
anonymity towards strangers um, is, in my opinion, what emboldens people to attack others or inflict pain in others in that way. Mm, that is so interesting and a very good point. I also, you know, can't help but think about that connection of when we talk about the almost dangers of anonymity to online and how people can hide behind a computer screen, that people might be feeling the same way when it comes to their actions and behavior in big cities like that. But the thing that I just cannot grapple with is that the target for many of these attacks are the elderly Asian American community. And why would anyone pick on the elderly? I think they're is a wide spectrum of Asians in the U.S. And one on one end, there are people who seem to embody the quote-unquote model minority myth, mm -hmm. who are the highly educated people and economically successful. And on the other hand, there are people who may talk, look, and behave differently um, than what people may be used to, along with the elderly. Um, so I think that the elderly have one less social leverage and mm -hmm. two um, they are definitely more vulnerable which may attract att attackers is my hypothesis and three they might be the people because they may be different in some ways they might be the people who really embody the differences um, in cultures and we can easily pinpoint them as they're from a different country that's not the u.s so this idea of um, the other may may make people feel more comfortable in attacking these people so that that's my hypothesis of course i can't say that i understand the attackers and anyway, but um, that's that may be the reasoning that may be going on. And I think this relates to the fact that um, in general, Asians have less visibility when it comes to mm -hmm. politics and many facets of our community. And of course, there are many generations of Asians who are becoming more um, empowered to raise their voice in politics and communities. But I think that right now we a lot of Asians don't have as much visibility as the other racial counterparts. So I think that also may be relating to the reason why. Yeah, I guess that um, I, I wanted to say it makes sense, but I think your hypotheses make sense. I think we're trying to rationalize irrational behavior. So it is the best you can do to understand why anyone would do this in general. And, you know, honestly, no one deserves violence. So it doesn't matter elderly, young, any group in between it, it's wrong. Um, but you know, it's, it's clear that this didn't happen overnight, even though we might have been tuned into that more recently since 2020, especially we've been seeing a lot of weird behavior of calling the COVID-19 um, virus, a China virus, people not denouncing that, especially in the highest forms of leadership in the U S and then, you know, just example, you know, foil that foil comparison of the UK variant for the virus. No one started picking on you, the British people. And I'm not saying that they should, but the bias was really evident. And that bias is coming from somewhere. There had to have been, there is a historical context to this. So how do you, how would you explain to someone how this history has been a real integral part in leading up to where we are today? Sure. So Hostility has really accompanied Asians since the first wave of migrations in the 1800s from various restraints on immigration, most notably the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And um, with the onset of World War II, there were the Japanese American internment camps. And in the aftermath of 9-11, South Asians have been affected by the waves of Islamophobia mm -hmm. that was that swept across the U.S. And very similar to today, um, there was the SARS outbreak in 2003. There were also anti-Asian hate crimes that popped up. So I would say that there are large timestamps throughout history um, that that have tracked the record of anti-Asian hatred. Um, but even beyond that, we feel it every day in terms of the microaggressions um, that tinge with racism, such as, uh, which is one of my pet peeves, mm -hmm. I get asked, like, where are you really from? Which oh, implies, God. like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I think that it this ties back to how one of the articles that I've read mentioned that Asians are viewed sometimes as permanent foreigners, so never truly integrated mm. to the United States, which 
brings up a lot of questions. And I think that recent events um, that have to do with anti-Asian hate crimes have come to light because of one, increased awareness of race-related crimes, as you said, especially after last summer, and two, recording and sharing of um, social media. And three, I think that there has been renewed waves of activism in the Asian community. I know that um, Asian activism has been, has has had also a long history, but also um, I feel like more people are getting involved and asking how to get involved. So I think that there is a new renewed attention towards this, despite the fact that it's been something um, with a long history. I think the benefit of 2020 is that people are starting to pay attention to your point. Um, but at the same time, it's clear this existed way before, as you're describing I remember in, I think it was 2018, a coworker of mine was taking the BART um, from the city to a suburb and they were um, a victim of one of the hate crimes. And of course, we, when we heard about it, these are things that we hear about maybe elsewhere, or you just don't imagine knowing someone who goes through that. And I'll speak for myself, but it was a really clear indicator that you can be really naive sometimes in terms of what's happening around you if you don't take the time to work on it and understand and do your research and keep up with what's happening around you. Um, You know, what's one thing that's staying with me from what you said earlier is the fact that you are now afraid of going back to New York, thinking about how that perception has changed for you and even thinking about that bubble burst for you. I can't imagine. I mean, tell me more about how you're thinking about that return and your relationship with New York now. Yeah, great question. I think that going to college in New York has been an amazing experience. As you said, I love New York City, but it's also moments like this that I realize the dangers of living in a city, especially with my identity. Um, And these are Mm -hmm. parts of my identity that I can't change. So I think one thing that's really interesting, especially about big cities and the anonymous nature that it provides to its individuals is the fact that I sometimes my identity is boiled down to how others perceive of me um, physically. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of vulnerability is is something that I definitely realized moving from suburban California to New York, I felt, but now I feel like the romanticized vision or romanticized version of New York City that I lived under the haven of college life, I think has definitely kind of where the current situations have given me a wake up call of um, the vulnerabilities. If if it should be phrased that way, that I need to live with as a part of my identity. So um, it's it's a complicated feeling. It's it's a wake-up call and, um, I guess, a burst of a bubble. Absolutely. First of all, I am so sorry that you have to experience this and try to make sense of this because it's truly unfair. What you mentioned especially reminded me of that concept in psychology of locus of control, where things within your circle of control you can manage and take action and active action on, and things outside your sphere you kind of have to let go of. And that's fine if it's stress, but when it's your safety, when it's your body, you know, we talk about bodily autonomy a lot, um, especially the last episode with Priya Sani. Um, she taught me a lot about kind of that concept and it really makes you wonder, like, if you don't belong to the group of privilege who can have that safety and afford that bubble, then you are walking around the streets or anywhere feeling like your space and your body is out of your control. It is up to someone else to dictate what happens to it. And that is truly fundamentally injustice to me. And this happens to many groups, um, especially if you're underrepresented. Um, you could be discriminated against or you could feel like you're out of control of your body, which you have the most right over because of your religion or race or gender or sexuality. And one of the things we've been talking about lately is especially is, you know, the bodily control of the black community over their own bodies. And so there's a lot to learn, I think, with our movement against anti-blackness and the anti-Asian hate, what do you see in common here? And what can we learn from 
our fight against racism with our black community and extend that and, you know, be able to envelop our allyship with the Asian community as well. Yeah. So I would say that the fights against anti-blackness and anti-Asian hate, as you said, has they both represent collective suffering under exclusionary policies and systems and white supremacy. So um, how The Guardian put it was that white supremacy or any form of racial hierarchy really um, that oppresses non-white groups are the roots of these sentiments. And I think that both types of hatred stem from a lack of awareness and exposure and furthermore are a lack of dialogue around what is race and how can with our differences and similarities how can we coexist within our communities so i feel like that kind of level of introspection of where i lie in this community along with how how we can work as a community um to better understand each other. It sounds very cliche, but I do think that there is a lack of deliberate thought towards this. And I think that's where um, the simplification of others to racial stereotypes and other simplification of other cultures, that's where um, the anti-Blackness and anti-Asian hate can really emerge. Um, So I'd say that that's that that's really the similarity between those two. Yeah, I really appreciate your approach to that. The the concept of the more and more you reduce people to that shortcut way of thinking. I always think about in psychology that concept of heuristics, like the shortcuts your brain mm-hmm. takes to just like quickly categorize something and feel like, okay, fine, I've like figured it out. And I think a lot of the times the way the messages are out there, the limited amount of time people take sometimes to learn about different communities and the mm-hmm. convenience factor of that for them, unfortunately, lead to a lot of sudden heuristics when like the moment happens. Mm. And um, it is so, so unfortunate, like even thinking about in New York, I was reading that Chinese restaurants are closing down in the fear that their employees will get discriminated against in their commutes over mm-hmm. to work. Um, and these types of things, like, again, you would never think, but like people are making just quick snap judgments and it's not excusable just because people have had a hard year or whatever it is, right. That's leading mm-hmm. people to get there. So you said that you're from California, correct? Mm-hmm. Oh, love to hear that. Um, so I'm from NorCal and you are, are you a NorCal person too? No, I'm from Southern California. Oh, awesome. So we've got both halves covered of California. <laughs> and I I bring this up because we have, we can, we boast one of the largest Chinatowns. We boast a lot of Asian American immigrants and tend to have a lot of communities and cities that are almost prominently Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm trying to get at the fact that even though we have these quote, havens dedicated, you know, people think that they are. Um, they're also some of the places where the community that lives there gets targeted in their own community. And I know mm-hmm. New York is not alone either. And so how do you also address the perception of, you know, this type of like environment, um, you know, Chinatown is a safe place versus like, they're not really the inclusive spaces that people think that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there is definitely an interesting dynamic of Chinatowns um, as places for both tourists and locals. Um, And sometimes places like Chinatown um, represent culture on display or embodied as a place. Um, And as a a fun side note, I like visiting Chinatowns in any major cities um, Mm -hmm. that I go throughout the U.S. and in Korea as well. Um, But I think that whereas Chinatown and other communities that's rooted in a single culture can be gateways for better understanding and immersing in potentially unfamiliar cultures, it can also act as simplifying cultures. So going back to um, the fact or my idea that um, these cultures may be on display um, in places like Chinatown. I think that that kind of concentration of cultural exhibition, as outsiders may see it, can strip the complexities of Asians and Asian American identity. Mm. So, for example, some individuals um, based on those experiences in Chinatown, for example, may simplify ethnic identities into specific facets of culture, such as food, accent or ambiance. Mm. And 
And Mm -hmm. I think that this may be one of the reasons why there's been violence in Chinatowns, but despite our perception of them being inclusive and safe spaces, Mm -hmm. because again, the place and concept extracts the individuality of the people who inhabit it. And it becomes a placeholder for an entire country and culture to vent out frustrations on when we really don't have a lot of options to, um, vent those out. So I think that that's the interesting dynamic of those places of um, cultural exhibition, um, especially during times like this. I think you so beautifully articulated that. Um, I felt like I was like trying to be like, I'm trying to get the question, but hopefully you understand. And you like so boss move right there um, with your response. And I, I really appreciate you teasing that out because it, it therein, I feel like lies the juxtaposition almost of when you the creating a specific place that was intended to be inclusive Mm -hmm. then therein also causes this generalization of this the community that people if they don't again take the time they don't understand it can very quickly stereotype Mm -hmm. um, and boil it down to a larger construct am i understanding it correctly for sure so now zooming into the asian community itself of how this the subject is being tackled and addressed Mm -hmm. one question i had and you know this comes from a conversation i had with a friend about you know can people of color be racist and we talked about the difference of racism versus prejudice Mm -hmm. can asians be racist Definitely. I think that um, especially so my with my very limited understanding and knowledge, um, I think that sometimes certain Asians perception of race and again, can't generalize to the entire race, but some individuals um, perception of race is sometimes tinged by white, white elitism that may potentially be an artifact of colonialism, as you touched upon earlier. Mm. So I think that, so I identify as a Korean American. I was born in Korea and I was raised in Southern California, but with my limited knowledge of um, Koreans in the mainland Korea, Mm -hmm. I found that a lot of Korean communities often don't talk about race at length. And this is probably due to the fact that Korea often largely has racially homogeneous communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So they haven't had a lot of opportunities to interact with and think about ethnic ethnically diverse individuals, um, which again, may prompt them to resort to um, simplification and racial stereotypes. So I think on that note, Asians can definitely be racist. And even beyond that, any individual can be racist. Um, I think that there is an idea of racial hierarchy that are the systems that we um are a part of and policies that we see and feel um, have that tinge of racial hierarchy um, or those nuances, which um, may affect people to have some sort of racist ideas in some way or form. Yeah. What you're saying is really resonating. And um, thank you. I I actually don't know as much about the social hierarchies that are prevalent in Korean um, Korean American communities. So um, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, the way I connected to it was with our Indian American community, which I identify as a part of is we can sometimes go without questioning those hierarchies as well, because it's sort of this established norm. Um, and it's so connected to different cons- institutions that have already existed, like caste system, religion, et cetera, that people like by asking one question, you kind of have to unravel the whole thing. And then people stay away from it. So there's sort of a let's not ask questions about it. Let's not push it too much because that's just the way things are. Um, Is this something that you encounter with your community and your family? Like, how do you see racism discussed when you look at your um, kind of quote, I'm simplifying here, but Korean side of life and American (laughs) side of life? Yeah, so I would say that particularly with respect to the anti-Asian hatred, I've been reading Korean news about it and watching like YouTube videos of Korean news of it. And I think that the similarities is that um, news coverage is there and there is a focused disappointment in other communities of color for not helping out and antagonizing certain races. Pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think that that antagonizing portion uh, definitely exists in the American news coverages as well. Um, but I think what's interesting about the Korean 
um, side of coverage is that there isn't a, a lot of continued coverage in everyday discussions, um, such as in documentaries or in movements or call to actions or discussions of high profile figures. And that may be because um, the anti-Asian hate crimes are primarily happening in places outside of Korea. So um, media companies may deem it as less relevant, but that's something that I've realized. And another thing, another difference that I have I observed was there is a less focus on the root cause on white supremacy and exclusionary policies. And there's also less focus on um, providing um, call to actions and nuanced discussions of applying, yeah, nuanced discussions. Um, so I would say that that's the differences. What do you mean by that? Can you clarify? Yeah, so I think that it's very easy for people to say that in response to um, anti-Asian hate crimes, we should strengthen policing or we should budget or reallocate our budget accordingly, et cetera. But I think that that also impacts other communities of color who are also uh, facing inequities in the face of um, our policing systems. So um, I think that when the Korean news covers um, anti-Asian hate crimes, they don't have the context of what does it mean to reallocate our budget and what does it mean and what are the implications of um, changing our policies or strengthening Mm. existing policies. And I totally understand because um, the Korean political system and um, the society in Korea is very different from the U.S. and we have different histories and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I think because of that absence of context, there is the absence of discussions on root causes. I think you framed that really well. It's something that I try to get at, and I think I'm just going to have to steal your wording around it. But with my own family being in India, you know, a lot of the time, sometimes when we're talking about certain topics, we're operating with such different understandings and our reality of social climate and the government landscape and the laws, the way the news is talking about what's happening all differ. So we're working with such a unique um, kind of array of backgrounds that when we actually meet trying to find common ground or even have like a foundational understanding or start to the conversation, it can be tricky So the farmers protest, for example, is one that we've been trying to have a better discussion on. But the way I'm hearing about it here and the research I'm finding and the news that they're being shown and the role that Modi plays in the country and kind of the um, way that he's portrayed, they keep clashing. So we're unable to really get to that starting point to even get the conversation going. Yeah, I think that kind of going off of what you were saying, I think that especially last summer when there was a lot of um, movements and activism for Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think that a lot of us have learned a lot throughout that process. And we are now applying that learning, um, Mm -hmm. which we from which we remember from last summer to this circumstance. So I think that that's how um, the U.S. was able to progress in that way. Whereas I think that, again, as it travels, as news travels and loses some of that context, I think that that kind of learnings and nuances of racial discussions um, are lost in some of the Korean news coverage, at least the ones that I've seen. So I'd say that that's mm-hmm. definitely a difference Um as I try to kind of um, digest this fact of anti-Asian hate from the Korean angle and the U.S. angle. Yeah, that makes sense. How has being Korean American helped you better understand and participate in the dialogue that's happening in America now? For sure. So I think that being Korean American um, provides a lot of complexities, which I definitely appreciate. Yeah. I think one of the complexities is that, as I mentioned before, um, the fact that Korea is largely a homogeneous society. Um, so I can, to a certain extent, I can understand why having a discussion on race and the difficult process of fully understanding um, differences in any culture, I can understand that that's difficult. Um, so I think that's mm-hmm. one part of my Korean American identity um, that's helped me digest this process. And I think that with respect to your question on allyship, 
I think that the dual nature, the dash, as I like to call it, between the Korean and American has helped me think about being placed in different situations. Mm-hmm. So by that, I mean, um, when I hang out with my Korean friends versus when I hang out with my uh, Korean American friends, I can feel a difference. Mm. And um, it's and that's a difference in a very similar in a very similar culture, very similar context. Right. Um, so I can understand like the different the differences between race and kind of understanding that and standing up for although it's different and I can not say that I can understand someone else of a different race or a different identity completely. I can understand how to at least support them throughout the process. Um, with that being said, I'm still learning the process of becoming a, a more supportive and effective ally. But I think that that kind of internalization of differences and um, recognizing kind of like the in-betweens of different nuances and cultures have helped me understand race better or at least in this conversation absolutely i think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of that lifelong journey that is understanding not only our own race and identity but also the world's racism and and how to be an anti-racist it's a lifelong piece definitely i think you have really exemplified what people strive for is that it's a the acknowledgement of it's a lifelong journey to be anti-racist and to understand one's own identity, especially when we've got multiple ones floating around. How do we continuously learn, relearn, unlearn? You know, it's such a journey. And sometimes like the same thing you could meet later in your life and it'll have a totally different impact and significance to you. So I appreciate you sharing that. And actually, speaking of learning and unlearning, um, where this really shows up, I think for me, especially is my conversations with my family or and my parents and how we look at things and reflect on the past and kind of make sense of these dualities. So I'm curious, Irene, like I would love to, you know, I'm I'm no master in this. I'm still figuring it out myself. How do you have conversations with your family and specifically your parents about these subjects? So I wouldn't say that I am 100 percent successful in having these very difficult conversations with not only my family members, but also friends, especially if a they disagree or B, if they are a little bit more removed from um being an activist themselves. So I faced having to have these conversations, especially after last summer, George Floyd. Um, But what I've personally tried to do was continuing to raise it in different ways, whether it be um, over the dinner table or just like casually sending out an article and asking for people's thoughts. And I've really been iterating Mm -hmm. like what works best for my family members and friends who may not be, um, at the same energy level about this issue. And I and I think one thing that's notable about this situation and when I have these difficult conversations is understanding the fact that um, we come from different, yes, different levels of exposure. So for example, some of my friends and family members may not be as um, active on social media. And what I realized last summer and this year with um, the anti-Asian hate was that a lot of the activism was going on in social media. A lot of people were getting their call to action, resources and energy from social media, from um, absorbing a lot of information. Mm. And of course, that's sometimes how they get exhausted, because as you said, there is so much of an influx of information. But I think the key thing for me, at least, was recognizing the fact that some of my friends and family members don't have that same level of exposure and context, Mm. which may be why um, they may feel a little bit more detached or they may not have um, bits of the bigger picture. So I think that 
when I face tension and disagreement, or I have a tendency to have a lot of energy and passion when I'm speaking about something, and I get frustrated if my passion isn't met. So um, mm. I found that that kind of frustration, I need to kind of understand that not everyone is absorbing the same amount of information or levels of information. And I think another thing to know is that some people may be um, getting a lot of information and coverage through traditional news and media companies and and um, which may not be posing a lot of um, proactive call to actions um, for the sake of like neutrality. Um, so I think that understanding that is also an important facet in facilitating any types of these conversations. Yeah, I feel like I'm learning so much through you slash like it's like very therapeutic <laughs> to hear you talk about these <laughs> ideas you. because I yeah, like you you really eloquently capture such a complicated situation. And it can be really hard when you're trying to find out the balance of neutrality, but also with some action and passion, um, because it's hard not to feel passionate or um, riled up when it comes to issues of injustice. It's it's very, I feel like it's natural because inequity should make you feel upset, I hope. Um, but that could be me. Um, to your point, the news, if that's your only source, can stay neutral or you're listening to whatever slant it has. So you, you might not get the full scoop. Our social media bubbles, people often, you know, obviously lament over you can create echo chambers. Chances are I might unfollow you if you put something super racist or sexist because I'm like, we don't have much in common. Um, I don't want that energy in my life. The con of this is that we don't get balance because it's equally important to understand the other side so that you can not only sympathize, but be able to engage. And I don't mean someone who's being hurtful or causing harm, um, but I mean that getting to a common ground with a different perspective. So I don't know, sometimes I find myself really confused as to how to do this right, quote, quote. Like, do I keep engaging with people who are like me so that I can get that energy and motivation and pep talk to go keep charging on? Do I balance but get frustrated or feel like I'm hope, you know, it's hopeless? Like it can be really, really um, confusing. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I think that adding on to what you said, which you just summarized really beautifully, um, I think that to have these conversations, as you said, it's so energetic to have conversations with people who are on the same same energy levels as you on the same topic. But I think that it's also been really productive to have these conversations with some of my friends and family members who are not on the same page mm -hmm. because they're the people who like even if I say stupid things, they'll be the ones who will be supporting me and they'll be the ones who will be patient with me as I try to figure out what is the best way to communicate my thoughts, which may be different. Mm -hmm. So I think that what what you were just reminded me of is the fact that it's important to continue these difficult conversations. Um, and it's been productive, at least for me to see, like, not everyone thinks like me, um, totally. which I need definitely a reminder of um, when I get passionate. So um, love the point that you brought up there. I'm honestly just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> um, so, you know, to take a step back today, we're here because we wanted to talk about what's happening with the Asian community in the U.S., we could have done that in a post. So if we really wanted to get this out there and just talk about what, we could have done that. But the reason I know I wanted to have this conversation with you was because I really wanted to get a bit more intimate into how does this impact the community personally? How does it impact you? How do you feel about it as a member in the community? And as someone who's on behalf of Revolutionaire, trying to take steps to educate people and get them involved in the solution. I mean, myself as an Indian American um, and anyone who, who is toggling any kind of multiple identities, they can probably connect with how do I communicate across that dash or duality and be able to find some common ground. I don't have to just talk to Indian Americans to feel like I am understood. I felt like what you were describing describing as a Korean American, I could truly relate to from my side as being an Indian American. So I love being able to have these conversations where we can find that allyship just out of honestly like human connection. Um, and 
so the thing I want to kind of get uh, move forward to is now leaving this conversation, what action can we take? And maybe even through Revolutionaire, how can we get more involved to show up for our, our Asian community? For sure. I think this is a great question. And this is something that I'm still asking myself. So again, big caveat. Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, it's recognizing that the foundation of oppression and abuse of um, whatever hatred um, towards a specific race is rooted in exclusionary policies, white supremacy, and our idea of racial hierarchy. And I think for me, the one of the hardest things um, to for me to begin with was recognizing that not everything will change at once. This mm. is partially due to my impatience and just like wanting to see change all at once. Um, but undoing generations of racial inequity, the silos and lack of two-way conversations is definitely going to take time. And again, this is something that it's still difficult for me to grapple with. Um, mm -hmm. When you put in a lot of energy and you put in a lot of time and thought into such a cause and don't see immediate improvement, yeah. it can be definitely frustrating. Especially because I feel like why I get impatient sometimes too, because I'm like, why should we wait? Like this is mm -hmm. an inequity that is in a, I just don't see how you could disagree with this, right? Like piece mm -hmm. of equity for folks. And all people. Um, so I get kind of like passionate about like, why should we wait? I am tired of hearing, you know, like, please mm -hmm. wait, like it takes time. For sure. And me too, This, which is kind of hypocritical of me saying this. Um, so I'm still in that process of kind of recognizing that time, change definitely takes time. Um, so I think that's really the first step for me. And with that in mind, I think that investing the time to learn about these issues, to recognize the historical nature of problems, and again, doing almost a root cause analysis of um, how this issue that we are facing currently have taken on different forms throughout history. Um, I think learning about that ha is another important step. And another thing we can do is recognizing the importance of allyship, as you said, um, is, again, like there are so many different social issues that kind of plague our communities um, and recognizing that a lot of them have um, the same root problems, um, but there are so many different ways that we can show up from for our friends and individuals, um, I think, again, is another important step. Um, and I think that another thing that is often underrated is taking small personal steps towards micro changes, whether it be recognizing assumptions or flaws in one's personal opinions and ideas or setting up like recurring donations, keeping up with um, whatever is going on in the news or mm -hmm. when you're ready, joining advocacy groups and platforms such as Revolutionaire. I think that not undermining the small steps that you are taking right now is really important because I think that with these discussions, um, race and equity isn't a sprint. It's really a marathon. So yeah. we should prepare ourselves mentally and be ready to take small steps and be um, okay with that. So I know I threw out a bunch of different steps, um, but I think that there are so many ways we can begin, begin but really the important thing is preparing ourselves for um, a longer run and discussion. I actually really appreciate that you shared um, a lot of different things because I think <laughs> everyone has a different way of connecting with how to participate and get involved. And so I think mm -hmm. you've kind of gave a perfect buffet. So everyone has something to, <laughs> to you know, kind of click with. And um, what you said really resonated because it made me think about this, you know, piece of like, for example, um, it was Black History Month in February. And all of a sudden, I'm getting all these, you know, newsletters and emails, especially since last year, right? Everyone's like mm -hmm. businesses are like, we're super diverse. And <laughs> like I show these like our artwork, look at all our black artists. Oh, look at all our black like seamstresses and <laughs> like all these things. Like I subscribe to a lot of home interior design stuff. And I was like, wow, oh, that's so it. interesting. I've never gotten these emails from you before. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. now you guys are like, look. 
So, I mean, I do appreciate that it's moving towards that. Um, It is a good thing. But I also Mm. feel like, shouldn't we do this every day? So, like, when we talk about, Mm -hmm. like, endorsing black businesses, do it every day. Like, make an effort to understand how you can support. If you want to support, you know, some of the businesses that have taken a hit because of the um, Asian American hate that's going on, like, endorse Mm -hmm. them. You know, sign up for... I saw this organization that's um, walking elderly Asian Americans around um, town when they have to do errands mm-hmm. just to make sure that, you know, like they're with groups and not vulnerable as vulnerable. Um, it's unfortunate we have to do that, but it does make mm-hmm. a difference. Right. Um, so For sure. I just feel like these things like there's so many things. If you just take a second, extra second to think about other ways that you can kind of challenge yourself to seamlessly integrate allyship, like you can show up in not just always like clicking a donation button or, you know, um, posting a meme, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think there are so many ways you can do a day to day. I think that is a really great point. And adding on to that, it's really when we when you mentioned the businesses, I had to laugh because I definitely felt that. But beyond that, I think that as individual consumers and individual members of our respective communities, it's our continued engagement that also encourages such such businesses and organizations to also keep up the effort of these like drives and um I guess movements towards awareness so I think that's another thing to keep in mind Mm -hmm. not to put pressure on people I I think that whatever is sustainable and healthy for each individual to take action on I definitely support it um but remembering that it's really on us to continue this engagement um I think is another important thing to raise yeah I actually really appreciate that you touched on the concept of caring for yourself mm-hmm. during this time too. And when you're getting involved in these topics, which again, I, I highly encourage everyone to care, give all the books <laughs> about everything that's happening because mm-hmm. it is all connected and it does matter. But um, at the same time, there's probably an element of burnout that can occur. So especially in activism, I know this is super important. And um, even as you think about your work with your, um, with your participation in Revolutionary and your work with Justice, and Nia and the others, how do you guys self-care during activism? For sure. Uh, Revolutionary specifically is launching a recharging component um, within its platform. But beyond that, what I found was really helpful is that within the revolutionary community, we definitely talk, have those discussions about what what is the big problem in politics or what are the many, many problems that um, affect our society today. We do have those in-depth and really thought-provoking discussions, which I appreciate. But on the flip side, we mix it up with um, more lighthearted conversations that remind us that there is a big issue that we're here together to tackle. But on the flip side, we're also here to serve as a community and ally towards one another. Um, so most recently, I just sent out a text in our group chat about what's everyone's favorite emojis. <laughs> and I think that that's the perfect example of um, sometimes being a part of such a community like Revolutionaire is enough um, to recharge. Having those people who you know have the same mindset and goals mm. of tackling um, the various issues within our society, but also knowing that they're your friends and allies. Um, I think that ha- being a part of those communities and having discussions at whatever debts and what about, sorry, whatever issues um, is an important element of recharging. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And it's super helpful. I think, again, I think you mentioned this earlier, but the marathon, not a sprint piece of you have to last Mm -hmm. um, because these things don't necessarily always go away and change can be a work in progress. And so you got to keep fighting the good fight um, and not lose interest just because it's, you know, the the month is Mm -hmm. gone or the movement has kind of quieted, et cetera. So um, I love, yeah, like when friends are just continuously obnoxious about it because you kind of have to be. (laughs) Uh it's still happening (laughs) um last but not least i just wanted to end with a quick chip chip round which i mentioned (laughs) Uh it's my honor to always do this where ask a few fun questions that you have to respond to without taking too much time to think Mm -hmm. so are you game yep (laughs) (laughs) your favorite korean american fusion food this is my mom's frugalgi burrito which is like marinated meat (gasps) really good oh my god that sounds amazing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> weirdest thing you've experienced in the new york subway 
I personally did not experience anything weird or maybe because I'm so dense that I don't <laughs> notice it. But one of my friends, he saw someone putting like a bottle of lotion in like on himself, not not my friend, but the observer the fellow subway rider um, all over himself. And that was really weird. An entire bottle. Yeah, it was it was a scene, apparently. <laughs> Damn, talk about hydration and nourishment <laughs> to your skin. Yes. <laughs> um, if you had to have one song, only one song play in your brain on repeat for the rest of your life, which one would it be? There are many songs. I sorry, this is no longer a chup chup round because I'm elaborating. <laughs> but <laughs> I listen to songs on repeat all the time. So this one today it's Sunday Candy by Chance the Rapper. Oh, I love Chance. Yes, um, yes, and I do the same thing. It drives people nuts, <laughs> but it's okay. You know the song you like based on your Spotify like replay mm-hmm. at the end of the year. You're like, I did <laughs> listen to that a million times. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's some kind of like uh, affirmation. <laughs> self-affirmations all the time (laughs) and lastly why are you down to brown I love this question I let me know if I'm not answering this correctly but growing up I'd have so many like so many of my best friends were Indian and that just like exposed me to the the great complexities and cultures of it um so definitely love 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 all the people um that I've met who are Indian 